nights, um, we have been dealing with some questions that I have been asked <clears throat> a few times about uh, over the course of the last few years and wanted to try to address those from Scripture. And uh, two Wednesday nights ago, um, we dealt with the idea of where did the Old Testament saints, how did they get saved, first of all, and uh, where did they go uh, when they died before Christ died on the cross. And we dealt with that from Scripture. And um, if you did not get the chance to hear that one, I would encourage you. It's on our Facebook. Uh, I think it's archived with our Facebook page. You can go back and find the date on that and listen to it. Last, uh, last Wednesday night, we dealt with the issue of um, the uh, where do babies go when they die and or the uh, level or age of accountability. And again, tried to give uh, a biblical insight into that. And so for the next several weeks, Lord willing, we'll deal with some uh, probably some of the more um, obscure questions that some people have had, but yet are important questions uh, that the Bible does teach on. And uh, so tonight we're going to deal with uh, why we believe that the rapture is a pre-tribulational rapture, uh, pre-tribulational rapture. This has become a point of contention in a lot of uh, good churches, a lot of good Christian folks have changed their position on this for uh, a lot of reasons. Um, I think part of which is even explained in the lesson tonight as to why they change these things and their doctrine and what they believe. But we're going to take a look at Scripture. We're going to see what does the Bible have to say. Uh, I will tell you this, that you will not find the word rapture in your Bible. It's not in there. <laughs> okay? Uh, it's interesting that uh, it uses words like caught up or caught away. And uh, when the Latin versions of Scripture were written, they uh, would use the word uh, rapere, uh, which was a Latin word meaning caught up, and that's where we get our word rapture from. We began to use that as a common terminology. Uh, but it's not specifically found in our King James Bibles, and yet we find that it is quite clearly taught. Let's look in John chapter number 14. We find one of the first mentions from the Lord Jesus Christ or from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ about the up and coming events or the events of the end times is found here in John chapter number 14 and verse number 1. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. That ought to be a clue enough in itself to tell us where this is going. If the rapture is mid-tribulation, if it's post-tribulation, then we would have troubled hearts to say the least, would we not? So there's a pretty clear teaching here right off the bat. Now, I just want to help some of you out. We're going to, uh, before we get very far into this, let me try to give you a little bit of a timeline in case some of you are not familiar with end-time events, okay? We're going to give you just a really in-a-nutshell sketch, okay? So before Calvary, uh, 2,000 years ago, before Calvary, we have what was called the Old Testament time. And then from Calvary, uh, right now we're living in what's called the New Testament time. And uh, the... Um, at the end of uh, the New Testament time, which the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, there's going to come a rapture of those that are Christians. If you're saved, God's going to come back and Jesus is going to uh, be in the sky. He's not going to come to the earth, but He's going to be up, and the Bible says, in the eastern sky. And uh, the trumpet's going to sound and He's going to call up the Christians. And the Bible says that we're going to be uh, uh, raptured up into the heavens and we're going to be with Him. And the Bible says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. So from that time on, we're going to be with the Lord for the rest of eternity, although there will be some other events. 
a very short period of time after that, probably just a matter of days or weeks, uh, uh, there's going to come a, a figure on this earth called the Antichrist, and he's going to rise up and become a world leader. Uh, the reason he's going to be called the Antichrist is he's going to come and persuade the world that he is the Christ. He's going to deceive many, the Bible says. And so he's going to uh, establish a treaty with the nation of Israel, which is God's chosen people. That's one of the ways he's going to create uh, the deception and the illusion that he is the Messiah that has come. And so the whole world is going to follow him at that point. Notice this, the Christians are not here. They're already gone. So again, we have the, the, what we call then the seven years, the Bible speaks of, from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end. We find seven years, or actually down to about chapter number 19 uh, of Revelation. It talks about seven years of what the Bible refers to as tribulation, the tribulation. The first three and a half years, things go fairly well. There are some, uh, some things that, that are bad that happen to the world. Uh, there's some natural disasters and things that will happen. At the end of three and a half years, the Antichrist will go into the temple in Jerusalem and will create an abomination. Uh, he'll do something that is so sacrilegious that it offends the nation of Israel, and he'll break treaty with Israel. From that point on, uh, then there's going to be the last three and a half years, the Bible refers to as the Great Tribulation. In other words, there's going to be tribulation that is beyond anything man has ever seen before. If we think there's pestilence and, and famine and fires and hurricanes and tornadoes now, we have nothing, we've, seen, we've experienced nothing like what the tribulation is going to be like. It's going to be so bad in the last half of the three and a half years of the tribulation, the Bible says that men will seek death and will not find it. It's going to be that bad of a tribulation. So seven years. And then at the end of the seven years, we have what's called the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to come and he's going to put his foot down this time on Mount Zion. And the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. That's where uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast are all going to gather all these people together. And they think they're going to come and defeat Christ. And uh, he's going to set his foot uh, there uh, on Mount Zion. And uh, we're going to, uh, the Bible says, by the word of his mouth, he's going to destroy him. So he's literally just going to speak and uh, the... Armies are all going to be destroyed. And then we have ushered in uh, the millennial period. And again, I'm not going into all the details. If some of you are sitting there saying, Pastor, you missed something, I'm trying to just give a high-level overview. So then after the tribulation, the seven-year period, we have what's called a millennial reign, a thousand years of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to this earth and reigns, and we as God's people will reign with Him, the Bible says. You say, how to, and to what extent are we going to reign with Him? I don't know all the, all the ins and outs of that. The Bible doesn't tell us how and how much we're going to reign with Him, but we're going to be with Him for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, uh, just right before that ends, uh, God is going to, at the whole thousand years, Satan's going to be chained in, in the bottomless pit. And for a short season, at the end of that thousand years, God's going to loose him. And again, I think for the reason of allowing those that are born during the millennium um, to have an opportunity to have the same choice you and I did, to either choose between God or Satan. And uh, at the end of that millennial reign, uh, God's going to bring absolute judgment uh, on Satan. He's going to cast him into the bottomless pit forever and ever, and uh, the lake of fire, and, uh, and then we'll uh, be in eternity from there on. There's a lot more involved in that, and when we get to study on prophecy, we'll deal with that. But that's kind of a basic structure. So Old Testament, New Testament, seven years of tribulation, a thousand years of millennial reign after that, okay? 
We believe that the rapture happens before the seven years of tribulation. We believe the Bible teaches that. There's a lot of people who say, no, it happens in the middle of it or it happens at the end of it. There's some problems with that according to Scripture. So if, you, if you're wondering what we're talking about tonight, that's what we're talking about. Is there a pre-tribulational rapture taught in Scripture? Well, we find in chapter number 14, verse number 1, right off the bat, we kind, of, we kind of find something that lends itself to the idea that this is going to be before the tribulation, isn't it? Uh, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, this is where we begin to see the teaching here. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And again, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is using this as a source of comfort uh, causes us to at least initially have the idea that this is not going to be something that's halfway through the tribulation where we have to suffer and we have to uh, be under the Antichrist and his rule and his reign during those three and a half years. Um, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and we're going to look at a more clearly um, ex expressed thing of the rapture in First Thessalonians. <clears throat> in First Thessalonians. And we're going to go down to verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Now, I want to stop for a moment and make this statement. Who is writing this letter? Anybody remember who the author of this book is? Who is it? It's the Apostle Paul. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the church at Thessalonica, right? That's where we get the word Thessalonians. Now notice this as he says this. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now, that's very important that we understand this because Paul fully expected the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in his lifetime, as did many of the apostles. Again, if, if the idea of the tribulation period having to be halfway through or the end of it before it, the rapture happens, then this would not hold true. The apostle Paul would not have been expecting it, and uh, there would have been some problems uh, with that, but we find this as we get to verse number sixteen. Uh, verse number uh, sixteen: For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, according to verse number seventeen, sixteen and seventeen. Those that are dead in Christ are going to rise, and they're going to go up into the air. Those of us that are alive and remain as Christians, those that have trusted Christ as our Savior, we're going to go up into heaven and be with the Lord. That leaves who on earth? The unsaved, right? Leaves the unsaved on the earth. All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And hang on to that thought that the unsaved are left on the earth. The saved are caught up. It's going to come back here in just a minute. We're going to 
tie that together with something. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, again, in verse number 50, the Bible says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, the mystery is the rapture. Understand that in Old Testament prophecy, they foretold of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very clearly taught. Uh, the rapture is, is vague at best, if you can even find Old Testament passages that deal with it. Primarily, the rapture is a fairly New Testament truth that is taught, for the most part. And so again, they're showing this mystery. This is something that has not been taught aforetime. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Again, using the word we in the first person, he didn't say some of you, he said we. Again, Paul, writing, expects the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in his lifetime. By the way, you and I ought to expect the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lifetime. He says, we which are alive, and he says, in this verse number 51, he says, but we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, I may not make it, but out of all of us that are alive, maybe we will, maybe we won't. We may not all, we may not all die. Certainly, as he's speaking to Christians, he's saying we shall not all sleep. There's going to be some of us that are going to be alive when this event happens. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible... That's, that's our old flesh nature. Shall have put on incorruption. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's enough to make even a Baptist shout right there. Amen? We don't have to go through this. That's what he's saying. There are those of us that are going to be alive and remaining until this time, and we're not going to have to go through the wrath. We've been delivered from that because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians again, chapter number 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. So, understand this, that the events that are described in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, both of those are describing a rapturous event that takes the saved out of the world and leaves the unsaved behind. All right? So understand that. All right, now let's look in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. And I did not turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And now let's look in verse number 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So who is he speaking to here? Again, he's speaking to the brethren at Thessalonica, those that have turned from their idols to serve the living and the true God. Notice in verse number 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven. Now, they understood that the Lord Jesus was coming back, didn't they? How did they know that? He told them, didn't he? Or the angels did, anyway. Remember when Jesus ascended to heaven? 
The angels told him, as you've seen him go, he's going to come in like manner. All of the apostles thought of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, and many of them thought it was going to be in their lifetime. And we get to verse number 10, and he says, he's speaking to the folks that have turned from their idols to serve the living and true God, and they wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, notice this, which delivered us, who is that? Who's the us? Christians, all right, those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, He has delivered us from the, notice this, from the wrath to come. There's going to come this time of wrath and tribulation, the wrath of God that's poured out on the earth and on man. And we are delivered from that because of the fact that we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, another great scripture that shows us that we will not be here when that time comes. All right? Now, how about some Old Testament examples? Are there, are there things in the Old Testament that illustrate God's character in this matter? All right, let's take a look at some of this, because I think uh, finding how God has acted in the past oftentimes will indicate to us how He will act in the future. And uh, so let's take a time and look in Genesis chapter number 18. Genesis chapter number 18. Uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 5 first. Let's go to Genesis 5. Genesis chapter number 5. We're going to go down to verse number 21. Uh, that's, yeah, verse number 21. And uh, let me just kind of set the stage here for a few moments. Uh, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've been sent out of the Garden of Eden. They have begun to multiply and scatter on the earth and... The Bible says that they began to do great wickedness. In fact, every man started to do that which was right in their own eyes. As we go down through these lineages, in verse number 21, the Bible says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God. He was different than the rest of those around. There was something unique about him in that he walked with God. And he, uh, he notice it says, In uh, all the days of Enoch uh, were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. Now, we find here in just another chapter, as we go over to chapter number 7, another event takes place. And this event is that God gets so fed up with the wickedness of the world that he's going to judge the world and he's going to destroy all of it, isn't he? Right? We all know the story of the great flood. Okay. Enoch was a man who walked with God, and yet God delivered him before judgment came. Also, I want you to notice in chapter number 7, and as we get down to verse number 9, and uh, us, uh, back up to verse 7, And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him into the ark, because of the waters of the flood of clean beasts, and of beasts that are not clean, of fowls, and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. And there went in two, and two unto Noah into the ark, and male and female, as God had commanded Noah... And it came to pass, uh, let's see here, and it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. So again, God brings judgment to the entire world for the wickedness and for the sin that was taking place. Yet there are two instances of godly people that he pulls out of there before his judgment comes, doesn't he? That speaks some to the character of God in the matter. Is there anything else in Scripture that would lend itself to this idea? Well... Let's turn over to Genesis chapter number 18. Genesis chapter number 18. And again, you, can't, you cannot establish doctrine on these instances in Genesis 
but they do illustrate and they help support the idea of God's character in these matters. Look with me in Genesis chapter number 18 and verse number 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, anybody know what story we're talking about here? God's getting ready to destroy two cities, isn't he? Sodom and Gomorrah. And he comes to Abraham because he knows that Lot and his family are in Sodom, not just pitching their tent toward Sodom at this point. They have now moved into the city of Sodom. He was vexing his righteous soul from day to day and seeing and hearing their evil deeds. And so Lot is a part of the city, although he's not a part of their wickedness. But the fact that he did not take a stand against it condoned their wickedness in that aspect. And Abraham comes to God and says, God, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And what was God's answer? God's answer was, no, if you find the righteous in that city, I won't destroy it. Now, Abraham gave him a number, and Abraham kept lowering that number, didn't he? He got way down there, didn't he? God was long-suffering that even if there was a small remnant, he was not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. That speaks to God's character, doesn't it? We go to when we were in First Thessalonians chapter number one, and it deals with the fact that uh, we have escaped the wrath to come, and then we look at the character of God and His view on not judging the righteous with the wicked. Then we find that there's there's a precedent set in God's character. All right, uh, I want to give you this idea. If you take the time to look through the book of Revelation, now the book of Revelation is the most exhaustive book we have in Scripture on the tribulation period. You'll find the first three chapters are seven letters written to seven literal churches. Some people believe they match up to the different ages of the church, and they may very well do that. It's interesting to see that there are certain periods of time, and they are chronologically in order, that fit the characteristics of each of these churches. Whether that was God's intent with writing them the way that He did or not, I would not argue that point or debate that point. But certainly these were seven letters to seven literal churches. <clears throat> and then we get to chapter 4. If you will turn with me, Revelation chapter number 4. Now again, John is writing here. And after he has penned these seven letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, to the seven churches, in chapter number 1, he writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And here we find the exact same types of descriptions that John visualizes that are mentioned in First Thessalonians chapter 4 that the trumpet will sound, the voice of the archangel will call them up. And we find that that same type of event happens here in chapter 4, verse number 1. And John sees this in his vision. And from chapter 4 and verse number 2 all the way to the end of chapter number 19, you will not hear anything mentioned of the church. It's not in there. Why? Because the church is already gone. The church isn't there anymore. The only people that are there, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, are who? The, the saved have now been taken out. Who's left? 
It's just the lost, isn't it? The unsaved. Those are the only ones that are there. Now, can people get saved in the, in the tribulation period? Absolutely. The Bible's very clear on that. We'll perhaps do a lesson on that. But there are people that can be saved during the tribulation period. But there are no Christians that are being ushered into the tribulation period. Okay? Everybody understand that? You won't find it anywhere in Scripture. By the way, you won't find anywhere in the entire Bible that alludes to the fact that Christians will be in the tribulation period. Then there's something else that causes us to understand that Christians will not be here. The Bible teaches what is called the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Christians were going to be in the tribulation for any period of time at all, if, if they were going to be around for the, the, the revealing of the Antichrist, if they were going to be around for um, the abomination of desolation, or if they were going to be um, around for the, uh, the vials and the, uh, the trumpets and the, the, all these judgments that are going to be given, then, then there would be no reason for there to be an imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christians could just wait until that happened and then prepare and be ready. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. We'll look at several of these. And keep your Bibles handy. We've got a lot of Scripture to go through from this point forward. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 7. <clears throat> Paul says this, So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the term waiting. Now look with me in, verse, uh, in Philippians chapter number 3. Philippians chapter number 3. And verse number 20. Paul once again writing, he says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for Him. We're watching for Him. We get the idea here? There's an imminent return. First Thessalonians chapter number 1. We have already been in that passage, but let's take a look at what it says. First Thessalonians chapter number 1. And verse number 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven. So again, we're watching, we're looking, we're waiting, aren't we? These things are imminent. Uh, Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2. And verse number 13. Looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to be looking for Him. You know, every day when we wake up, we ought to be wondering, is this the day the Lord's coming back? I, I fear so often we get so wrapped up in the cares and the affairs of this life that we don't ever think about the Lord's return. We know it's out there somewhere. It's going to happen. We believe that. But did we wake up this morning thinking, today could be the day? Are we watching? Are we looking? Are we ready? Are, are we getting things in order? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing when the Lord comes? When He comes, will He find us faithful? <clears throat> Are we watching for Him day by day? This is what prophecy is for in Scripture. It helps to keep us on the, uh, on the idea of being motivated to live rightly every single day. As if the Lord's coming back at the very moment. You know the Lord could come back before we get done with this service tonight. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Some of you all be like, woohoo, we're ready to go. Others of you be like, oh man, I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. I hope when the rapture happens, I don't think, Lord, I wish I had none. I really hope I don't feel that way. The sad thing is, I think far too often I will feel that way. 
We are to be watching. We are to be looking. We are to be expecting. We are to be hoping for it. Look with me in Hebrews chapter number 9. Just over a few pages. Hebrews chapter number 9, verse number 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto him that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Those that look for Him. Are we watching for Him? Are we pursuing after Him? 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. And verse number 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, gird up your loins. Don't be caught sitting down doing nothing when the Lord comes back. Be ready for it. I mean, just be, be ready. Uh, I remember as, uh, as I got older and, and still enjoyed playing basketball, but I would try to get out sometimes with the teenagers and play basketball with them. And sometimes I'd be in my, in my pant, in the long pants and dress pants and stuff, and they'd be out playing in their shorts or whatever. And I'd be like, okay, watch me jump up there, and I'm going to block this shot. And I'd pull my pants up, you know, like this. I'd get them ready, and I'd get down like this, and I'd crouch, and I'd, I'd gather myself to do it because I was expecting to do something. That's the idea that, that Peter's giving here, that we gird up our loins, that we're ready. We're expecting the Lord to come. We're, we're anticipating it. Look with me in Jude, the book of Jude, and verse number 21. Jude 21. He says this, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Can I tell you this, that if the appearance of the Antichrist, or if the abomination of desolation, if some people believe in the mid-trib rapture, or if the events of the tribulation have to manifest themselves before we are raptured, then there's no reason for this teaching, is there? There's none. Because at the moment the Antichrist comes on the scene, we have exact periods of times that are listed in Scripture. From the point of the abomination of desolation, we have the exact periods of times. We know when they're going to happen. From the time that the Antichrist rises to power, it's going to be uh, 1,260 days until the abomination of desolation. Exactly, to the day we would be able to say that's when the Lord's rapture is going to happen. If it was at the end of the tribulation period or after the tribulation period events happen, we would be able to say from the very first day that the Antichrist sets himself up, that's, that's exactly when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. There would be no reason for this teaching. The fact that the apostles, the early church fathers, were looking for his imminent return, the fact that we're taught in Scripture over and over and over again that we're to watch for, to be looking for, to be hoping for, to gird our loins to not be caught unawares, to be ready for these things, shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ can come at any moment. And then, the Antichrist, the seven years of tribulation. Now, <clears throat> I will say this, and some of, the, some of the folks that are advocates of a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, uh, they usually call them post-wrath, uh, believers, they, they mistake or they misinterpret or mis, misteach portions of Scripture. Because there are Scriptures that will show us that we will suffer tribulation. 
Okay, let's look in John chapter number 16. John chapter number 16. In John chapter number 16, verse number 33, he says, These things I have spoken unto you that ye might be, that ye might, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have what? Tribulation. Okay? And they'll take passages like this and they'll say, Aha! There it is. Christians are going to have tribulation. That shows that we're going to be in the, tribu- the tribulation. No. There's a difference between having tribulation in this life and the tribulation period. Don't get them confused. Don't get them mixed up. One is a suffering in this life, and that absolutely happens. The other is a marked event that happens uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and raptures his, uh, Christians, those that are Christians away, and the Antichrist sets up and, and goes through seven years of God pouring out his wrath upon the earth. Now, why is the imminency of the rapture important? I'm going to give you ten things. We've got four minutes. Are you all ready? Hang on to your seatbelts. I'm going to have you, if you will, I want you to either listen to the video again and get these or write them down while you got a chance to write them down because I'm going to give you them and then I'm going to give you the passage. We're not going to take time to turn to each passage, but I want you to have them, okay? Why is the imminency of the return of Christ, the, the rapture, so important? What, what does it do? Okay, number one, it encourages you and I to be faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It encourages us to be faithful. Number two, it encourages us to patiently wait. To patiently wait. We are to have patience on it, but we're to be looking and watching and waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verses 19 and 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. Number three, it encourages us with great comfort. <laughs> Both in uh, John chapter number four, uh, 14 and in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, we find that God even says in John chapter 14 that this is something, let not your hearts be troubled, that it's to be a comfort to us. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that wherefore comfort one another with, the, with these words. So it's to be a comfort to us, this imminency of the return of Christ. That's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 18. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Number 4, it encourages us to be steadfast in the faith. To be steadfast in the faith. By the way, when you don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, it'll, it, it, it causes doctrine to slip because there's not an urgency to be steadfast in the faith. And so a lot of the churches that you see that are, that are doctrinally unsound, you look at their doctrine, they'll believe in either a, a mid or a post or an ah tribulational rapture. They don't even know when it's going to happen, but they don't believe it's going to be pre-tribulation. And that's found in First Peter chapter number 1 and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, that we be steadfast. It's also found in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 14, if you'd like a second verse for that. Number 5, it encourages you and I to be diligent in serving God. It encourages us to be diligent in serving God. 
if we truly woke up this morning and believed in our heart that today could be the day, who would we have put down on our list of people to call? Who would we have put down on our agenda to go by and visit today and try to lead them to Christ before tonight was over? We begin to believe that the rapture can happen at any moment. It encourages steadfastness. It encourages diligence and service. 2 Timothy chapter number 4 and verse number 1 through 8. 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 8. Folks, uh, oh, I wish we had more time. If we understood the eternity of hell, and we understood the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there would be no greater soul winners on this earth than us. That we'd be diligent in serving God. Number six, it encourages holy living. It encourages holy living. Colossians chapter number 3, verses 4 and 5. And Titus chapter number 2, verses 12 and 13. Number 7. The imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ encourages soberness of mind. Soberness of mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 6. You say, Brother Greg, is it wrong to cut up and have fun sometimes? No, it's not wrong. But we have become such an entertainment-centric society that it seems like if it's not fun, if it doesn't interest me, then I don't want to spend my time on it. I'll tell you this, if I thought that studying my Bible would prepare me better to share the gospel with somebody... and studying my Bible is not as fun as going to Six Flags, would I be sober enough-minded to think, you know, time is of the essence. I better spend some time studying my Bible. I better spend some time getting ready to share the gospel with somebody. What if somebody came to me and asked me a question and I, I, I couldn't answer it? Do I know Scripture? Is there a soberness of mind? Number eight. It encourages us to abide in Christ. Keep that fellowship. Just before the service, I was playing a hymn, and Miss Sandy asked me what it was, and the title of it was, Nothing Between My Soul and the Savior. I don't want to be embarrassed if the Lord comes back. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to have to weep in front of Him. I want to be able to stand before Him and say, Lord, I've done what I should have done. I've tried to live right. I've tried to live holy, not to make myself saved. I've tried to abide in You. I've tried to have that relationship clear. 1 John chapter number 2, verses 28, and chapter 3, verse number 2. 1 John chapter 2, and verse 28, and chapter 3, and verse 2. Number 9. The imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ will encourage perseverance. It will encourage perseverance to endure through tribulation. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. 
James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And number 10, it'll encourage us to be obedient. It'll encourage us to be obedient. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. 2 Timothy 4, verse number 1. Every once in a while when I was a kid, my mom would... My mom and dad would, would leave us kids at home, and they'd give us a list of chores to do. And my sister, who always had to be the one that was the goody-two-shoes and did everything perfect, and would always tattletale on me all the time for all the things I didn't do that I was supposed to do or did that I wasn't supposed to do. I don't know how she did it, but she would always get her chores done like the first ten minutes that mom and dad were gone. Then they'd, she'd go and read a book. Me? No, not so much. There was too much playing to do, and Mom and Dad were going to be gone for two or three hours. I mean, I, I was going to wait till the last second, and I could, I could tell you over and over and over again at times that Mom and Dad came in, and I got in trouble because I had not been obedient. You know why I had not been obedient to them? Because I didn't expect them to come back as early as they did. If we understand the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will help us and encourage us to be obedient to Him. I hope some of this will help. Um, again, I believe the Bible teaches fairly clearly. There's not really room for us to say anything other than it would be before the tribulation period. And I hope that this uh, has been a help to you. And um, we'll, see, we'll see what the Lord has for the next few weeks. All right? Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word, how it teaches and instructs us in righteousness. Lord, the urgency, the, the imperativeness of your imminent return. The fact that you could come at any moment, at any time. Nothing has to happen. Lord, there doesn't need to be the rise of the Antichrist. There doesn't have to be three and a half years of peace in Israel and the establishing of the temple and the sacrifices. But Lord, your return can happen as soon as tonight. Lord, may we live with that in mind. Help us, Lord, to be sober-minded, to be diligent in these areas. In Jesus' name we pray. Dismiss us with your blessings. Amen.